takes a lot of dedication. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. I am also going to read from the book of Acts. All of this will be up on the screen. You can either turn in your Bible to Matthew 1 uh, and then Acts 10, or you can just look when we put it on the screen. Amen. Tonight's going to be a great, great service. We're also, uh, normally what we do when we uh, have our children's Christmas play, we give out candy to all the kids, and so we're doing that tonight. So if for no other reason, you come to church, bring your little child so he can get his candy bag. Uh, so those have been put together in a very nice presentation, so um, you can bring them for that. Matthew chapter 1. It is without a doubt the most incredible, magnificent story, piece of history in the history of the world. God became flesh and dwelt among us. If I said nothing more than that this morning, uh, that should be enough to spin your head. I preached, I think, two years ago uh, on the miracle of God becoming human. God became human for us. Born like a normal child is born. Raised like a child would be raised. It is a spectacular story. It is an unbelievable story. If you didn't know it to be true, it would be almost too much to accept as having actually happened. The birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ is the centerpiece of all human history. Our calendars are dated from before and after his birth. 33 years of life, three years actually, only a public ministry. So if you take that three-year period of time, more was accomplished, more was achieved, more impact was made a hundred million times over than any other human being who ever lived. And how much of a percentage is three years can in comparison to the seven to 10,000 years of human history. I want to preach on that, if I may. But as I begin to consider the Christmas story, my thoughts and my inspiration go beyond the Christmas story. And I want to try to encapsulate the birth the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus in a normally timed sermon. I can't take you from Genesis to Revelation, but maybe I can take you from Matthew to Revelation or somewhere thereabouts. The magnificent Christmas story and beyond. Let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. See how unbelievable this is? Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man 
and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, meaning to divorce her. In those days, an engagement was a legal transaction. That's why he's being referred to as her husband. Not quite yet fully. They're engaged. They're going to be married and have a wedding, and then it'll be consummated. But because she turned up pregnant before he had known her physically, the thing to do would be to divorce her, and that's what he's setting in motion here. To put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife, did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Fast forward. On the other side of Jesus' life and ministry, on the other side of his death and resurrection, on the other side of Pentecost, the forming of the church, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit after Jesus. And fast forward another 10 years. The Apostle Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples, is bringing the Word of God for the first time to a crowd of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And he preached these words 10 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, after his resurrection, after his death, after his life, after his birth. This is what he preached. Acts 10, 34, And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Jesus and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Examine these three features. First, the birth. So where do you start with this? The miracle birth of God's own son, born of a woman. Of course, this is the beginning of the culmination of God's plan of redemption. Had it been us, and our creation had failed to the degree that God's did, Adam and Eve having sinned, we might be inclined to start. Our God is a God of forgiveness, a God of love, a God of redemption, a God who heals, and a God who restores. The only perfect solution would be to send a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for your sin. 
Punishment has to come as a consequence of sin. It's either going to be eternal separation from God or Jesus who took your sin upon himself and went to the cross and bore the punishment that we were deserving of. And in order to prepare us for this incredible, uh, magnificent event, years before Jesus uh, was ever born, prophetic declaration, God was never going to destroy humanity. He was never going to eliminate the human race totally. He did judge and does judge. But ultimately, his purpose is redemption. And on the heels of Adam's sin, Adam heard these words as well as Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her. of commission and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to hurt him, but you're not going to destroy him. 5,000 years, perhaps more between Adam and Jesus, 77 generations of time. You can read those uh, generations in uh, the book of Matthew. From the beginning of the birth of from the beginning to the birth of Christ, what an amazing plan! What a very incredible, almost unbelievable, and magnificent miracle! Let's look at some of these Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call. Aware of some of the New Te Old Testament, rather, if they had gone into the temple, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other books would have been read regularly. And I wonder if that angel quickened in his mind this very scripture that was being fulfilled within the framework of his marriage. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, just a little small village, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old. From ever. I didn't live in Bethlehem. At the last minute, when she's nine months pregnant, they're ordered to go to Bethlehem to register for their taxes. They live in Nazareth. That's their hometown. But God had prophesied that the king of Israel would come from Bethlehem. And so he maneuvered the circumstances to bring Joseph and Mary into the city of Bethlehem, into a cave, into uh, this unusual. Thus a child is born, chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a sign is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice. That that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we...
behind the birth of Jesus Christ. God moving single-handedly, seeing the beginning from the end and preparing it every step of the way, inspiring the prophets to say things that they couldn't possibly grasp or understand exactly what they were saying. But they were said, they were written, they were, putting, they were put on record for us to observe here today. And then, of course, the miracle of his birth occurs. God became human for our sake, flesh and blood for our sake, God occupying a human body. We get so easily diverted and distracted with what Christmas has become, all the commercialism. As a matter of fact, the diversion, I think in some municipalities and cities around America, to say happy holiday and I think even that's still functional today happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas the essence of Christmas has been lost today we have to maintain it and recapture it even for ourselves sometimes in the book of Galatians Paul writes in verse 4 but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. This was God's offering. This is God's offering. You may have put money in the offering plate, and that may have cost you tithing and giving offerings. You may have wanted to use that money or needed that money for something else, but you gave, you know what? You're going to survive. You're going to live. You're going to go on, and God's going to bless you. God's offering to us was the life of his own son. This was what was put in the offering plate on our behalf. We're so familiar with John 16 that we lose the meaning of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through but that the world through him might be saved. What's the greatest, most beautiful, maybe most expensive or meaningful gift you've ever received in your life? Some might say, a woman might say, well, it's my diamond ring that my husband bought me, or it's some extravagant piece of jewelry, or it's this incredible vacuum cleaner he bought me last year. I don't know what you would say. That's God's gift to you. That's what he gave to you and I. We were in sin on our way to hell. No hope, no way. You can't good work your way to heaven. You can't be nice and get into heaven. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Don't ever lose sight of this. Christmas affords us uh, the opportunity to reinforce uh, and to reestablish what this means. Uh, make sure that this is uh, at the center of what we are so grateful for. Make sure you take opportunity this Christmas season uh, to share the Christmas story. Uh, ask your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, uh, your, your family, uh, do you know the real meaning of Christmas? Let me tell you about it and what Jesus has done for me. It provides us with a great opportunity to be a witness and a testimony. So let's re-examine the scene of the nativity. The miraculous, the incredible miraculous occurs in such common and ordinary circumstances of life. Beginning with the normal couple, Joseph and Mary, who fall in love 
and they're engaged to be married. The engagement lends itself to a time of happiness and great anticipation. I'm going to have a wife. I'm going to have a husband. We're going to be able to have children. We're going to be able to raise a family. And then in our scripture, it begins this way, that the birth of Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. This was before they were informed of what was going to occur. They're engaged, not yet married. She becomes pregnant by a miracle conception. And of all the ways that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could make an appearance, why this way? Pregnancy, birth. Birth is difficult now. I've talked with a number of our women going through morning sickness and all of that. Now, I don't know if I'd be interested. Some of you mothers may want to track Mary down in heaven and ask if she had morning sickness. Be interesting to find out. And then to be born, God's being born out of a woman into a manger. Why? Why that way? Why not just come from heaven in a chariot as an adult, uh, descend on the Mount of Olives and start preaching? Well, there's a number of reasons. I think one is that Jesus had to, come to a man, had to come as a man, perfect in all his ways, demonstrate power over sin, live a perfect life, not fall. He had to come as a human being subject to temptation. If he had come in a chariot from heaven and descended as an adult, he would never have been rejected. They would have accepted him as king. It just wouldn't have worked according to his plan. And then I think the most important part is that we get to be a part of redemption. Common, ordinary young girl, probably 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. God said, you're going to be the mother of my only begotten son. You're going to be the father. They had done nothing to qualify for that other than probably be decent people, went to synagogue, wanted to be right and do right. Joseph has no way of processing this. He doesn't. She turns up pregnant. He has no way of processing this. He has to assume she has slept with another guy. This was a a horrible reproach in those days. This would have crushed him. This would have made him upset beyond description. She's pregnant. He has no way of processing what's happening unless God helps him. And he does. She's pregnant. They're not married. He's never been with her physically. I didn't do this. He knows that much. Who did? I thought she was a good girl. Came from a good family. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. That is translated this way in the Amplified Version. 
And Joseph, her promised husband, being a just and righteous man and not wanting to expose her to public shame, planned to send her away and divorce her quietly. That's where he's at. <laughs> That's where this guy's at. As I said in my introduction, in those days, uh, an engagement was a legal transaction. If broken, it was a tantamount, it was tantamount to a divorce. So obviously, Joseph is trending in the wrong direction. And God intervenes. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, Joseph thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call, he will save his people from their sins. That must have been a pretty convincing dream. Have you ever woken up from a dream and it, man, it, you thought it was real while you were dreaming? That kind of a dream, not some wacky thing that are what most of your dreams are. But still, the fact that Joseph could be convinced that this was the case. The Bible says he was a just man. That's all we know about his character. The word just simply means did right. His heart was inclined to do right. God appears to him. An angel of the Lord appears to him. And this is what the scripture says beyond that verse. Verse 24, then Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Not, not everyone could do what Joseph did. We don't know how old Joseph was if Mary as history tells us, was 14 to 16, then Joseph is probably 18, 19, 20, 21, maybe 22. He's an apprentice carpenter, apparently, learning his trade. But not everybody could do what he did. Not everybody would have the sensitivity. Because not only was this explained to Joseph, But it wasn't explained to everyone else. What are they going to think when she comes up pregnant? That's why Jesus is called the son of fornication. And I think all of us can take something away from that little part of the Christmas story. And that is gratitude for the obedience of those who God used to have gone before us. We can be grateful for Joseph. And the dream he had that night and his willingness to say, okay, God, whatever you say. I'm grateful for Pastor Mitchell's obedience. Can you all say amen? Okay, God, I'll do what you say. Pastor Warner, after having been immobilized uh, through paralysis from an automobile accident, uh, saying, yes, Lord, I will do as you say. And he went to Tucson and pioneered the church there. And I love the phrase that we find in our text. Uh, and Joseph did as the Lord commanded him. So let's look at the life of Jesus, secondly. The miracle life. The story doesn't end 
with the nativity. Three years, not five, not 12. I've been preaching for 41 years. He needed three. Look at what he accomplished. What would you say was the most important thing apart from the birth and the cross and the resurrection? Let's just in the three years of his earthly ministry, what would you say was the most important thing? Would you point to a certain miracle, a certain action that he took? What would you say if you had to identify the most important thing? I want to propose to you the most important thing that Jesus did during his earthly ministry was talk. The words that he spoke that have been recorded for our benefit here. Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth. Jesus said, we'll pass away, but my words will by no means ever pass away. It could be said that Jesus came to talk. He didn't have thousands of disciples. He didn't speak to stadiums full of people. He wasn't interested in that. He got 12, 12 men and preached to to other small groups and crowds, sometimes numbering in the thousands, but usually either individuals like the woman at the well or the rich young ruler or his disciples or small groups or crowds of people. And he began to speak. And so much of what he said has been recorded and those words have saved our lives. Even when he was 12 years old, Remember that day when Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice? And then Joseph and Mary went with different groups of relatives and family members and each thought Jesus was with the other. And they got a day's journey away and discovered that he wasn't with either one of them. And so they went charging back into Jerusalem and they found Jesus in the temple. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, and when all heard him, meaning Jesus, 12-year-old boy. They were astonished at his understanding of the Scripture and his answers to their questions. I don't know if you could ground him if he misbehaved. I don't know if he did misbehave. We don't know. Probably not if he lived a perfect life. And Mary scolded him. And then he fired back and said, I must be about my father's business. Any 12-year-olds listening to me, try that on your parents. Matthew 7, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He was capturing people's attention as far as they knew he's a man. But what he's saying is so unique and so different and so anointed and so powerful, it's moving them. John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The key to your soul, the saving of your soul, the health of your soul is to hear what Jesus said. 
Matthew 4, then Jesus said, Take heed what you hear with the same measure you use. It will be measured to you, and to you who hear, more will be given. So you take what you hear, you make it your possession, you put it into practice in your life, and more will come. But if you don't do that, if you don't hear for the purpose of listening and hearing and absorbing and then doing, you're going to limit what God can deposit into your life through his word. His word lives beyond the moment that Jesus spoke them. His words are what won the disciples. A lot of people saw miracles, but they didn't follow Jesus because of the miracles. Some did, but it didn't last. Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. That's why we're sticking with you. And in our second text... This is Peter speaking 10 years after Pentecost, after Jesus uh, had ascended into heaven. He said the word which God sent. Jesus is known as the word. That's how he's referred to in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from after the baptism which John preached. It was the word of God that persuaded men and women. It was the word of God that convicted them of their sin. It was the word of God that gave them hope, that gave them direction, that broke every curse in their lives. It was their response to the word of God that saved them and resulted in the forgiveness of sins. While Peter was preaching, to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. The Bible says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the word of God, the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Never happened before. The Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles, fell on non-Jews. They'd never seen it before. But along with his word, during the course of his early earthly ministry, of course, uh, there were miracles. He demonstrated his divinity through the working of miracles, and that's part of his testimony. In John chapter 9, I love John chapter 9, I love the story and the account. It's fairly lengthy of a man who got healed from blindness. And the Pharisees didn't like it, although they couldn't deny that he was born blind and then healed. They wanted to argue with him. Who did this? How did it happen? It can't be real. If, if, if this miracle was real, then it wouldn't have happened on the Sabbath. They dragged his parents in on the scene. Is this your son? Yes. Uh, what's happened? Well, he was blind and now he sees. How did it happen? They said, why don't you ask him? He's an adult. It's a, it's a very, to me, entertaining discourse that's taking place there. Verse 16 is one verse out of this narrative. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, meaning Jesus. He can't be of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He healed this man on the Sabbath. Can't do that. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs then? And there was a division among them. The impact of his miracles of which his disciples were fern hand witnesses, validated his divinity. He didn't just talk. 
although I think that was the most important thing he did, but he validated who he was and what he was saying by the working of miracles. And that's what Peter is referring to when he's preaching to the Gentiles years later in the, in the house of Cornelius, verse 38 of Acts 10, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Proof. Evidence. Validation. No one has ever done what Jesus has done in all of human history. He healed people by the thousands. He delivered them from mental torment, illness, depression, demon possession. He fed the multitudes on at least two occasions that we have recorded in the Gospels. He walked on water. He raised the dead and did it openly for all to see. The widow of Nain, her son, it was a funeral procession that Jesus and his disciples seemed to stumble upon in a village called Nain. And he saw the mother grieving and he had compassion and he walked over to the casket and raised up her son from the dead. And that was in front of everybody. And then in John 11, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, there were family, there were religious people, there were all sorts of people around that were grieving along with Mary and Martha, whose brother had died. And Jesus called out Lazarus's name and he walked out of the tomb in his grave clothes. He did that publicly. And that miracle was so powerful and so significant that the Bible says in that narrative that many came to believe in him. And what this does is it exposes the lie of dispensationalism. The reason I want to mention this here is because I've been hearing this recently and people that I've witnessed to and articles that I've read in Christian periodicals. Dispensationalism is a word to describe a, per a particular feature of theology that we, of course, deem as false. And what dispensationalism says is that miracles are gone. Miracles are no more. God no longer heals. He no longer works in a supernatural dimension. Miracles were only for the first generation, for Jesus' ministry, and then the first generation of Christians afterward, and then miracles died. Miracles went away. They're no longer necessary is what they say. There was a dispensation for miracles, and now we're in the dispensation, I guess, for no miracles. Of course, that's absurd on its face. The miracle life of Jesus is still being expressed and experienced and manifest through the working of miracles. Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. The same yesterday. The God who healed then heals today. The God who 
delivers then, delivers today. The God who supernaturally intervenes in people's lives to make provision for them intervenes supernaturally in people's lives today. The Amplified Translation says that Jesus Christ is eternally changeless always the same. Dispensationalism is false. It's not true. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say it is a lie to diminish the experience that believers can have in Jesus Christ. You can be healed. You can be delivered. God can miraculously intervene in your situation and circumstances and show himself strong on your behalf. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. Let's thank God for that. And so finally this morning, let's talk about the death. The miracle death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, from birth, as far as his earthly life is concerned, it's all heading toward this. And I don't mind imposing the ugliness and the horror of Jesus Christ's death during Christmas season. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is eight days old. He's being dedicated in the temple by Simeon. And Simeon said to Mary, by revelation, he said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many, and for a sign. One translation translates that word sign as target. And for a target which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. God's thoughts, even at the birth of Christ, were never far from the cross. And of course... That is the important feature. Jesus had to die. And he was never destined to die and remain in the grave. On the third day, he rose from the dead, breaking the curse of sin, hell, death, the grave, breaking the power of the wicked one, the stranglehold that the devil has on people's lives. He broke the chains, opened the prison doors, and set the captive free. And in the text that I'm reading from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 40, Peter goes on in his sermon and said, Him, Jesus, God, has raised up the third day, showed Him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Jesus rose, showed Himself, demonstrated Himself. At one time, He appeared to upwards of 500 people, sat with His disciples, cooked them breakfast, ate with them, fellowship with them, spoke with them. Every sermon that the disciples preached in the book of Acts uh, mentions the resurrection. He was killed. He was hung on a tree. He died. He was put in a tomb. Uh, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. We saw him. We talked with him. We ate with him. And it's on the heels of this that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. to tell. They had a story to tell. They had an incredible narrative to communicate. Jesus' miraculous birth 
his incredible life and the supernatural dimension of his divinity demonstrated by death and resurrection. This is what drives our ministry. And this is what Peter's preaching about in our text. It's the magnificent life of Jesus Christ from birth to his earthly ministry to his death and resurrection. Peter finishes his sermon in verse 43, 42. And he says that Jesus commanded us to preach, to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witnessed through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And the question for you to ponder this morning is what are you doing with his life? The whole life. Are we here just to uh, uh, look at a little baby and say, how cute, how wonderful, what did you get me for Christmas? Uh, or are we here to genuinely consider the incredible and the magnificent uh, birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does that mean to you? Have you embraced the full, rich meaning of it? Have you maintained that in your life? If you're live streaming, you may never have heard a sermon like this before. You may have gone to a mass uh, uh, during Christmas. You may have gone to a religious service, uh, but you've never heard the full measure of the Word of God. And maybe right now it's touching your heart. You could be here in person. And this Word that I'm preaching, anointed of God, is breaking through the masks, the pain, the woundings, the hurt of your heart, and revealing to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God raised from the dead and He's here to save you. Many of you have heard the poem, One Solitary Life. I want to read it as I close this morning. He was born in an obscure village, meaning Jesus, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked as a carpent, in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves while dying. His executioners gambled for his clothing. The only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have now come and gone. And today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary Let's bow our heads this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your attention. God love and bless each and every one of you this Christmas service day. Bow your heads, please, if you're live streaming. Bow your heads if you're in the fellowship hall here in the sanctuary. Let's have no movement, please, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Perhaps you've come to church this morning. Maybe you've come 
with a family member. Somebody invited you, you thought, why not? It's Christmas, I'll go to church. But much more is going on here than just your annual visit to a church service. God himself brought you here. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. Your life is not an accident. Your destiny has already been written. Your future has already been penned by God himself. Whether you experience that now is going to be up to you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I ordained you. God has a plan for your life, but it's going to be your choice and your decision. He's already made the decision. He won't force you, can't make you. You need to enter into the stream of God's destiny for your life, and you can do it this morning. What's keeping you from it is your sin. Your sin. to it as being in darkness. God, give us the ability to communicate your love and your compassion. Lord, anoint the service tonight, the outreach tomorrow night, Lord. Prepare hearts to receive a seed that will grow and bear the fruit of repentance, O God. Let's all stand. We're going to sing that song for he is Lord, he is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. No more appropriate words than those lordship and resurrection. Let's sing it to him this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God is so good. Amen. Let's really, really be in prayer about the service tonight. Make an effort to bring someone that needs Jesus. Come yourself. We're going to have a great time tonight. 
And then the big outreach tomorrow evening at La Placida. Let's make it a point to be there. We're going to be meeting there at 7 o'clock. Prayer meeting tonight at 5.30. Service uh, at 6.30. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Uh, I'm going to ask Isaac Thompson if you would, uh, brother, close us in prayer. Thank God for speaking to us this morning. Go rejoicing. Go celebrating. Go with the victory this morning. And let's uh, meet again together tonight. Amen. God bless you. Brother, would you pray?